Hey folks, it's Pete Trubis, the world's OK starting strength coach, here to talk to you a few things before this episode. New gyms keep getting added to the list, but our current holdup is being able to fill them with starting strength certified coaches. And since we won't lower our standard for coaching, we're going to grow our own. There's plenty of apprenticeship opportunities out there currently and in upcoming gyms. So if you're interested, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com, click on the coach tab, fill out the form so you can speak to our recruiter, Anna Capel, and she'll let you know what opportunities are available. There's also a map there to show you what's on the board and what's coming up. Along with that, we have our coaches prep course. It's an online preparatory course that's designed to help get you ready for the starting strength coach certification. It's open to any level. You're assigned a starting strength coach mentor. You'll have to go through 23 different modules, including academic written assignments, as well as coaching assignments, where you film yourself coaching different aspects of the lift and get real feedback from a starting strength coach mentor. It's a great opportunity to learn for somebody that is not able to coach in a starting strength gym or somebody that is becoming an apprentice. It is a great compendium to the apprenticeship program. So to check that out, head over to startingstrength.com and check out the coaching tab and you'll find the prep course information there. Lots of opportunity on the horizon, folks, so don't miss out. Enjoy the episode. Mildly entertaining, somewhat obscure guests, relatively interesting topics, semi-professional production quality, reasonably well-informed commentary, a great value for the money, hundreds of fans all around the world. It's the Starting Strength Gyms podcast with your host, Ray Gillenwater. All right, today we're outside because I've got two guests and we could either stuff three people in my tiny basement studio or it's spring in Idaho. We can sit on the patio and hang out. So you guys have met Ben already. Ben is my brother. He's the head of technology for Starting Strength Gyms. There's an episode, I think it was episode two, where we talk about tech at Starting Strength Gyms. I think so. So check that out if you want to know more about Ben and what he does for us. And then he's more here for moral support because the star of the show is Jen. Um, but Jen's an engineer and a little introverted, so kind of nervous to come on the show. But we got booze um, <laughs> and moral support, so it should be easy. Jen is, um, I guess the easiest way to describe her role or as to title her role would be COO. She runs operations for us at the moment. But uh, what that entails day to day is real estate, construction, and a bunch of other minutia. But if you want to do real estate and construction well, those are full-time jobs in themselves. And Jen is balancing a bunch of stuff on her own and uh, somehow hasn't quit yet. (laughs) She's probably thought about it a bunch of times, but she just opened seven gyms in three months uh, towards the end of last year and early part of this year? Well, we, yes. Um, well, but I mean, thanks for the credit, but mostly you. <laughs> and uh, oh, out of the people here, it was all you. Uh, correct. <laughs> so Je- Jen's role, the way it works basically is um, Luke Schroeder, the head of uh, uh, business development for Starting Strength Gyms and the owner of Starting Strength Cincinnati is the person a franchise prospect speaks to first. And then, um, once that person is qualified and the feeling out process is complete and both parties agree to move forward, sign the franchise agreement, and then everyone, uh, the franchise owner at that point is under Jen's responsibility. And then Jen runs them through all the pre-opening stuff, including um, real estate search, construction, and then getting set up. And Ben is responsible for things that apply pre-opening and post-opening. Because once Jen's done and the gym is open, the gym is then 
uh, under Nick Delgadillo's responsibility. So he's the main point of contact of the franchise company who's responsible for supporting franchisees once they're open and he has a small team. And then Ben's kind of, so those are like your verticals, right? And then Ben's kind of horizontal. Ben sits across everything. Ben is involved in the pre-opening stage. He's involved in the post-opening stage. He's involved with anything that has technology. So um, the main reason I wanted to have Jen on today and uh, use Ben as a, a way to get her on was to... Uh, just talk about the, the opening process. For those of you that are interested in opening a gym, for those of you that are fans of the brand and just kind of want to know all the inner workings of what we're up to, I was thinking it'd be cool to have Jen walk us through it. So the first thing I'll say is real estate and construction is probably the worst part about this whole thing. All the stuff that happens pre-opening is, is quite awful. And a lot of it's outside of our control. We're doing our best to put as much of it under our control as possible. Other than dealing with the government, I think construction and real estate are the worst, the worst parts of this whole thing. Uh, but we've 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 put some things in place and made things a whole lot better. So we'll, we'll go through that. So Jen, what happens? Um, Luke decides the person's a hell yes. The person decides they're a hell yes. We picked a great market. Uh, the person sends the check. Franchise owner is is now on board, and then uh, the let's go email gets sent. So what what happens next from a franchise owner's point of view? A lot of figuring out who's who and kind of where to start the, the learning process. We've got a whole bunch of people on the team that walk franchise owners through their specific fields. So anything from real estate, construction, signage, um, online coaching, um, marketing, um, sales training, sales training. I mean, all, all kinds of stuff. So it's kind of just like a big... Like, here's who we are and here's everything that you're going to learn between now and whatever, six to nine months from now when you're opening a gym. And the franchise owner talks to each of the each person that's sort of responsible for that realm. And then they get to know their franchise owners, start to ask lots of questions and start the learning, learning process. Um, while doing that, kind of in tandem, um, the real estate search starts, which is the obviously the first of two things that allows you to be an official business owner and, and operator and that's market research you figure out where in your market you want to put a gym so we have particular demographics that we're shooting for we want high population high total population high daytime population and high income generally so we figure out where in that market those three things are and then once we identify those areas in that market then we start to hone in on on sites. So we do a site selection process in those territories. And that looks like um, any location where there's a shopping center on a road with 30,000 vehicles per day or eyeballs per day, depending on what market you're in. Um, or, or really more. busy or more, mm -hmm. at least 30,000 or a shopping center with a lot of traffic. Um, and, a, and we try to find higher end shopping centers where we're looking at Whole Foods or Lululemon or Apple Store or something like that, where we know that um, the co-tenancy is going to drive people that can afford our gyms to, to come train with us. So start the site search process, start to pinpoint particular shopping centers that kind of meet these parameters. And then, um, and then we just go through the basic process of figuring out what the size of the, of the space is. Is it going to work? Is it too wide? Is it too narrow? Are the ceilings too short? Are, you know, what's the subfloor made out of? Um, is it wooden joists? Is it concrete? You know, just kind of go through all the particulars to make sure the site's truly feasible. Um, 
once we figure out the site is truly feasible, then we start the LOI process. So put together basically a, a document of, I think we have 36 bullet points now that we've, um, we've identified that we send to a landlord, we being the, the broker, but the, the broker sends to the landlord and says, here are these 36 points that we want to cover and make sure that, that we get right in the lease. Um, anything from the, the lease term. So we want at least a 10 year lease. So sometimes that's in the form of a true, like the first term is 10 years and then you get renewal terms or sometimes that's maybe a five term with a handful of renewal terms. We want at least a 10 year lease so that you're not, you know, you're spending all this money to do construction and opening this gym and um, in five years, you don't have to start the process over. It would not make financial sense to do that. So we start with a, at least a 10-year lease. Because um, the length of the franchise agreement is 10 years. So and length of the franchise agreement, much. yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of work that has to be done to, to get a gym open for business. Everything from construction documents to signage to actual construction and it's it's months and months of work and it's a very and it's expensive so you want to make sure you're in a you're in a position where you know how much you're going to be spending for at least 10 years and you know you know you're going to be in a good spot for 10 years so um so go through the loi process ideally you know a franchise owner submit selects a handful of locations they want to submit an loi on so that they have you know some options but right now the market is uh extremely challenging. It's apparently a historical low with retail availability. So we're kind of in this position where where we'd like to have maybe LO, three LOIs going at one time. We typically just have one. Um, and the landlord, it is a landlord's market. So the landlord basically can say whatever they want and they can ask for whatever they want and they often get it these days. So it's, it's, uh, it's a little challenging from a negotiating standpoint because the landlords are basically like, take it or leave it there's 14 people banging down our door for this space. So, especially in the markets we're going into. Especially, in the, yeah, exactly. Because we're going into markets where people, um, people are moving to instead of where people are moving from. Yep. And so there's more demand for everything, including commercial real estate. Absolutely, yeah. Which is kind of unexpected. I guess I figured with COVID and, and businesses, small businesses shutting down that that might not be the case, but it is a historical low in, in availability, so. Is that nationwide? Nationwide. Interesting. Yep. Yeah, I can understand why that's the case in Tampa, where real estate is, I think, more expensive than Manhattan was before the pandemic. Yep. But um, I can't imagine why that would be the case in L.A. Yeah, L.A. too. I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. I don't know if anyone understands the economy at the moment. It's quite a disaster. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, when you bring those points that you, uh, the, or the broker brings those certain points and attributes that you've identified to uh, to the LOI process? How often do you find places that meet all those or where you're able to get them all to match up? It really depends on the market. Sometimes we have markets where there are multiple locations that come up immediately. It's like, oh yeah, this is going to be easy. And then so for some reason, some markets that just don't have exactly what we're looking for. I don't know why, I don't know what the difference is. And like it's Boston. Not, like Boston, but Boston's a little more, a little unique because it's an older city. But even in newer cities where there's a lot of single story retail, which is what we're looking for, um, there are just places that are that are challenging to find the right place, the right, you know, the perfect location. Um, Indianapolis is an example where you have a lot of the wealth is in the suburbs, like northern suburbs, but the population is in the downtown area or south of the, of the wealthy suburbs. So it's like you have to kind of balance between finding the location where you're, you're going to have, uh, you know, the population that can afford our gym memberships 
while having the you know enough total population and daytime population to fill the gym so you need you need to to combine those variables what you essentially need is a high enough um a, a dense enough population of people with high disposable income yeah the overall density actually doesn't matter the density of those people is what matters and that's the tricky part yeah mm. for example in houston which when I went back and looked at the demographics of Starting Strength Houston, there are 75,000 households within three miles, I believe it was, or maybe 100,000 households. 50,000, over 50,000 households in three miles make $100,000 or more a year. So <laughs> there is just, it's an amazing. Uh, population that they have in that area it was really surprising. That's that's the the highest, that's the most dense, densest wealthiest pop, wealthiest population that we've that we've seen so far. And it just so happens that it's the uh, highest priced gym. There are gyms that are as expensive as it is, but is it is our highest pricing tier. Uh, JD's charging four fifty five a month, yep. which is thirty five dollars a session for three times a week. Uh, full with the waitlist. He's our highest grossing our highest grossing gym to date. Yep. And that street that he's on, is it Shepherd? Shepherd yeah. in the, inside the loop in Houston, and the visibility, the location. I mean, he's paying a lot for rent. When I built the model, I was thinking five grand a month would be kind of like an upper limit. Yep. He's paying seven grand a month. But I also thought 315 would be the upper limit of our membership. He's charging 455. Yep. So um, his expenses are high. He's got great coaches, got a perfect location. Very tight space, by the way. Um, and I wanted to ask you, so what, what are the... Uh, the space requirements at this point is it 1,400 to 2,000 square feet that we're looking for still? So yeah, in general, um, what we've kind of more focused on, we're looking at at total square footage from a top end threshold perspective because now that rents are so much more expensive than they were even two years ago, um, a 2,000 square foot space isn't always feasible anymore. Mm-hmm. So what we're looking for really is the the width of the space. So 19 feet five inches interior width. So to, mm-hmm. you know drywall to drywall um, is our minimum. And any more than that, you're kind of just paying for extra square footage. I mean, it's nice to have the the elbow room, but you're just paying for a bigger walkway, basically. Um, I don't want to turn this into a bitch session, but there's some things about this that are surprising to me, especially <laughs> the fact that uh, landlords don't know the size of the spaces that they're leasing out. <laughs> right. Yeah. So in so in the LOI, it's so dumb, landlords. God. Don't know the size of the space they're leasing out, and brokers don't know the address of the space they're leasing out. <laughs> yeah. In addition to other very basic parameters, um, but yeah, so we we <laughs> we have to send we well depending on the on the space, um, we'll sometimes have to send a team in there and like our architect to go and actually take the dimensions because because you pay per square foot. I don't want our franchise owners paying any more money than what their actual square footage is. And when you're looking at square footage of a space, you're not just looking at the, the interior shell of your space. You're looking at the center line of the demising wall, which is the wall that separates your space from the adjacent tenant space to the center line of the other other demising wall, and the storefront, and then the back of the gym. So you're kind of looking at this, this core square footage, and I want to make sure that the franchise owners get that right in the LOI. So like I said, they're not paying a dollar more than they need to be paying. And oftentimes... The square footage that's presented in the initial LOI before we go in and measure is uh, generous, yep. to say the least. So, <laughs> I remember the first time because Jen and I shared an, an, an office slash bedroom for uh, <laughs> for a while. I remember the first time I heard you 
negotiating with a real estate broker about the square footage of, an, of a space that you had physically taken measurements of? Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't understand. Like, why? Okay, but yeah, that's yes. the way that's the way commercial real estate is. Yeah, it's 2022. You can just kind of want things to be a certain way, and whether or not the facts align is irrelevant. Just write so. them down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. You have to sort of argue a couple things, um, and then, um, and then, like I said, arguing about the um, the address of the space <laughs> happens probably 80 percent of the time. Right. Um, and, and often, oftentimes we'll get like missed in the LOI negotiations and then it gets to lease. And then I have to be like, Hey, don't forget you have the wrong address and you're leased. (laughs) I guess the way to summarize why we're so discontent with the way landlords operate is because our, our business ethos is try to do right by people. So basically if, uh, something benefits me and it hurts you, I'm not interested in doing it. Even if I don't like you, if something benefits me and it's neutral to you, that's cool. If something benefits me and it benefits you, awesome. How can we help each other out, right? That's kind of like making sure everyone in the ecosystem has um, some sort of incentive to do the thing that makes the whole thing work, which is really what this this multi-tiered business is. It's aligning incentives. And I just don't feel like landlords could give a shit about anything other than I want as much money per square foot as as possible for as long of a term as possible with as little money outlaid from me as possible. And if I have to compromise on any of those things, then I'd rather just leave the place empty. It certainly seems that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, you know, every once in a while I get a small scale landlord. Because a lot, a lot of landlords we deal with are, are national, like real estate investment trust landlords. They're huge. This is just one of hundreds of shopping centers that they own in their investment portfolio. Every once in a while, we'll find a landlord that's really just a guy or a gal. That, a human. A human that owns yeah. a shopping center. You can actually have a conversation directly with that person instead of having to go through broker, lawyer. Most In most instances, you actually never talk to the landlord, right. ever. Yeah. Um, so it's it, every once in a while, it's nice to, to get into a shopping center. In Columbus is an example where... Um, it's just a guy that owns a shopping center and it's part of his invest, you know, his personal investment portfolio. And we email directly with the guy and it's a, it's a, it's a relationship. Um, that's wonderful. Yeah. But it often (laughs) does not happen like that. And it's, it's yeah, purely a monetary. Instead of human to human, it's human to bureaucracy. And what that means is sometimes there are rules and standards that they're requiring from their prospective tenants that don't actually make sense. And then trying to unravel the bureaucracy and get an exception made is a, a truly, yeah, truly awful experience. <laughs> yeah. The number of times that we've had to take manual decibel measurements <laughs> at different types of sound measuring specifications just because the landlords and their lawyers didn't understand sound. Yep. And then so we would just have to adhere to their bizarre requirements and go take measurements and Yeah. Can you elaborate on that, Jen? That that whole what what they were asking for and what happened, do you remember? Yeah. Um, I mean, in general, oftentimes, so in our, one of the 38 points in our LOI is that the landlord will not require soundproofing. Half the time, the landlord or landlord's broker scratches that out and says, landlord will require soundproofing. And then they say, thanks for the idea. Yeah. Yeah. I I forgot about that. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I know sometimes I'm like, we should just take this out. Um, so, and then they'll say to be, you know, discussed during lease negotiations, which is my least favorite thing. Right. That means we're not budging. No. Yeah. Yeah. So you get to lease negotiations and then there's there's language, for example, where, uh, you know, it says if we bring in a acoustical engineer and they measure, you know, 
sound in the adjacent adjacent tenant suite that's higher than 65 decibels for some period of time measured in DBA that you're, you know, basically in breach of release and we can kick you out in summary. Um, Which we're fine with other than when Chase Lindley is power snatching. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> 1,200 pounds or whatever. <laughs> yeah. But, and the, well, and yeah, and, and some de- decibel thresholds are, okay, fine, that's reasonable. But um, we had one recent lease where the decibel threshold was 50 decibels measured in the adjacent tenant space, which if you go into any tenant space where people are just having a normal conversation like we are now, it's going to be more than 50 decibels. It's more than 50 decibels outside. Yeah. And, this, all you can hear, and you can hear the birds chirping. I was going to say right now, it'd be more than that. Right. So it's, it's kind of like a... That was, that was the one that you and I went and took measurements at yep. the Boise gym to check, right? Yeah. So we're just like that's impossible. It's it's basically like us having to take this the step, which is which is fine to do, but to sort of educate the the landlord's attorney effectively on what is actually practical. And luckily, we usually get well, always actually have been able to get them to to kind of be a little bit more generous in their decibel thresholds. <laughs> Please, because attorneys don't understand business, but they pretend to, and they can't acknowledge that they don't. So I'm glad that even though they don't understand sound. They can sound engineering. They can admit that they don't and have their minds changed. Yeah, and I try to give them some some information so that they can hear for themselves and see for themselves. And we also have an excellent um, national real estate attorney that's uh, pretty pretty stellar in her in the way that she negotiates some of this stuff. So yeah, she really cares about the franchise owners and wants to put them in good situations because these are people that are typically unex- inexperienced with doing deals this big for this long. Uh, it's their first one. They don't know what they don't know. And those lease agreements are a minefield of potential litigation. And if you have a problem with a space that you've spent six figures building out, that is a very nasty situation if, if that six plus figures you spent was your life savings. Yep. So to have you looking after them and then have Karen looking after them, I know the franchise owners really appreciate it. And whenever we go to an event, um, we, we do a little round table of what's going great, you know, what could be better, how can we help? And when pe- we ask people what's going well, everyone always talks about how great the support is from the franchise company. And they're all, they're all looking at Jen when they say that because Jen saves their asses, you know, before, before the gym's open because there's so many things that can go wrong. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's uh, yeah, what I didn't anticipate with this role is I, I effectively have, have been playing the part of Mama Bear. <laughs> where I, I, we have mostly new business owners um, who are coming in and, and potentially spending their life savings or, or taking out massive loans, and they've got families to support, and this is this is all in. And there are so many ways that they can get taken advantage of, um, obvious ways and less obvious ways. And um, I, I feel like it's I've made it my like life's mission to be like, nope, you're taking a, you're being taken advantage of. Here's what you do instead. Um, and this is why. You know, we've built the team that we've built, and we've got construction people on the team now. We've got specialists on the team now, so that so that people are are less likely to be taken advantage of. I mean, you can still be taken advantage of for sure, but less likely. Right, because if someone make if, if a vendor makes a claim and we have no experience, no information, we can go try and do some research or find out. But if we have an expert on the team who's done it for ten years, we can vet their claim against this person's skills and experience and decide if it's reasonable or not and then have a negotiating position. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So once, once a franchise owner selects a, you know, they finalize the LOI, then kind of the fun starts what I call it, which is 
more stress. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so stress is good. <laughs> stress builds character. Stress builds character. Stress recovery adaptation. <laughs> that's right. Your kids will piss you off less <laughs> once you're able to handle the stress of being an entrepreneur. Oh, that's so true. But if they're compounded stresses, uh, no guarantees on that. Yeah. 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 It, it'll be challenging at first, but um, yeah. I always tell people like it's hard now, but you'll you're gonna open for business. You know, do well. Things will relax a little bit from the super just panic mode, and. Um, and you'll kind of look back and be like, okay, that was a really good experience. Now I know, you know, maybe I have what to do next time. And um, just just to probably be a little bit less stressed out next time, hopefully. John Fraser was about to expatriate and become a Canadian. He was so <laughs> yeah. tired of dealing with landlords oh, in wow. Chicago. <laughs> God, everything was against him in Chicago, that poor guy. Everything, really. Yeah. Don't, don't do business in far left cities. It's just, it's too expensive and they don't want you to succeed. Well, that's the thing. It's so, it introduces a lot of risk. And what I'm, you know, basically I'm realizing my, Jen is head of risk reduction <laughs> uh, in addition to other things. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of neat to think about that, uh, like our team collectively is very good at helping our colleagues, these entrepreneurs, like really minimize risk. Right. Yep. Which is pretty cool. That I never is. really thought about it like that before. Yep. That is actually the whole purpose of a franchise. What you're saying is, I believe I'll be able to solve someone else's problem so well that they'll pay me for it. And I'll be able to do that enough time so that I can make more money than I'm spending. And if you've never done that before, it seems pretty straightforward. And then <laughs> we've had, Ben and I have probably done 10 companies together. Um, at least at this point. And it's, uh, I've, been, I've been at this for a decade now, and uh, I've had one moderate success, let's call it a mild success. Um, I had a lot of success in corporate, but corporate's, it's training wheels. That's not entrepreneurship. <laughs> and then this business is going well. But um, a decade of trial and error and, and, uh, and getting things wrong, so. And then I believe, um, I don't want to misquote, but the, the franchise stats when you do a franchise instead of doing your own are much more palatable. Because if you actually look at the statistics, deciding to be an entrepreneur and open a business is stupid. <laughs> it's, you may as well buy a lotto ticket because what, what you're saying is yeah. um, there's, the world is the way it is right now and there's a particular domain where I know better. And I know better to the extent that if I bring this new thing to market, it's going to be better than what else is out there and people are going to divert their funds of this new idea instead of what they were doing before, if anything. Yep. And people are going to know that I exist. Which if you could build Doesn't the most amazing software as Ben has on multiple occasions. He, ben has apps that have millions of downloads and apps that Jiffy's has probably a thousand. <laughs> it's a great yeah, app. 75, 76 downloads. It's I don't a know. really good app, um, <laughs> but nobody knows about it. Yeah, my app Oiled had like eight downloads. Right. It's one of my favorite apps. That was a great app. Um, but... Nobody knows. Nobody care. cares because nobody knows. Yeah. And uh, if you get everything right and you don't get the communication right and the marketing right, then you are then you are screwed. So ultimately, what a franchise is supposed to do is take a proven business model and allow other people to buy it so they can de-risk entrepreneurship, have the freedom of owning a business without the risk. The trouble, though, comes with everything else that's happening to business across the world, which is... People that want to make money purchase companies that sell franchises and then they try to squeeze as much value out of it as possible and they look at franchisees as customers they look at franchisees as revenue sources as and they are but that is short-term thinking 
Short-term thinking is, I want to charge this person the franchise fee. Then I want to charge them royalties. Then I'm going to, when they buy equipment, they're going to buy it from us. And then we're going to mark it up. And then when they buy this and they buy that, we're going to mark it up. And we're going to charge them for these services. And we're going to do 4X what it actually costs us. And they're looking as their franchisees at their franchisees as a way to, to earn more money. And we explicitly don't do that wherever possible because um, we want our franchisees spending as little money as possible so they can make as much profit as possible so they can be viable for as long as possible. And um, these are 10 year agreements and by the end of the 10 years, we want uh, their payback period to have been fast and their profitability over time to have been high and for them to be anxious to renew to do it for another 10 years. Um, we're not interested in, in selling 100 franchises open in 15, having seven of them fail, yeah. and then trying to sell this thing to private equity because look how many franchises we sold, right? It's, it's the total opposite. Um, so franchising is, is great conceptually, but just be careful who's behind the scenes. And if, it, if there are not people with values and principles and business ethics behind the scenes, then you'll likely be dealing with Comcast as the people that get to decide whether or not your entrepreneurial endeavor is profitable or not. Yeah, find out you just wrote a check to a bureaucracy right? who has strict policies and nobody to talk to. Right. In fact, and Andrew Lewis, our Indianapolis guy, called me the other day and then I conversed with Jen and we were talking. He emailed us and asked about some conflict of interest stuff and he and I had an agreement about his current business and when that's going to, to wind down. And he said, hey, you know, I know we agreed on this date and that's the letter of the agreement. So if you want, I'll, I'll continue to do that. But I just wanted to mention the situation has changed or whatever. And I said, well, first of all, if I ever say we need to do this because that's what we agreed to with no discussion, we've we've failed. Mm -hmm. The whole goal of what we're trying to do here is, is do things that make sense. Yeah. So um, contracts are cool, but contracts are only there if the relationship deteriorates and we no longer what, what, want what's best for each other, which I hope never occurs. Um, and we, we don't even feel that way anyways of people that don't work out. People just don't work out. But obviously, the other side can sometimes get frustrated. Um, so we're, we're, trying to do things, we're trying to do things the right way is, the, is kind of the theme. And Jen is the, uh, well, actually, Luke is the first proof of that because Luke is a franchise owner and he's the guy that these prospects talk to. And Luke just shoots them straight. I just opened my gym. This is how it's going. This is, these are my thoughts on the whole deal. Do your diligence. Put together your pro forma. We'll go from there. And then they get passed over to Jen. And Jen is not letting anybody fuck with the franchise owners. <laughs> Jen will go to battle. Jen will lose sleep. Jen will escalate to CEOs. Jen will... You name it. Companies to do their jobs for them. Yeah. How many companies have you started so far to provide services to the franchisees? Because not because you want to make money, but because the people that are out there that offer the services don't actually offer the services. Like Jen's been through two or three sign vendors now. And the last one we pick is um, might be the worst company I've ever interacted with, yeah. including um, including companies from other parts of the world that are developing. Yeah. Might be the worst company I've ever interacted with. And these are the guys that do Starbucks. Yep. They do Starbucks storefront signs. Blows me away. Yeah. Poison in their system. They absolutely do not give a damn. They absolutely have no capability. And they're they, so what is it? Good, fast, cheap? Which one are you? Yeah. Well, none. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> none. Dishonest, unethical, slow. Yep. Yeah. And expensive. You know, mistake ridden. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The next company is probably signage. But for now, it's construction and uh, furnishes, fr or furnishings, fixtures. Yeah. Furniture, <laughs> fixtures, equipment. Can't even say it anymore. Yeah. Jen's husband, Zach, builds our furniture out of his garage because the company that designed the furniture in Long Beach uh, gave us a quote that was just unbelievable i mean seven times more than what zach charges to build it by hand yeah and, and then a super long lead time and yep and that was a fraction of the cost that these uh commercial 
equipment manufacturers wanted to wanted to charge. Yeah. I, I cannot believe what these people try to get away with. Yeah. You know, a wooden bench that should be what's a wooden bench cost? They're still expensive, like a lobby bench. What's what's the rough cost on that? It's nine seventy five. Nine seventy five. So let's say the designers wanted to charge a seven thousand and then for a bench. Right? <laughs> it's like what? Yeah. So we're we're not gonna tolerate that. And we're not gonna tolerate general contractors just being like oh, an extra ten thousand there and oh, uh, you know. Oh my god. Um, well and then Zach's actually gone out to do some of the installs himself. Right? Yeah. So um I Jen cares so much, she'll just be like husband. Please. Please drive a trailer to Oregon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sent my husband in a snowstorm to Oregon to build the build the platforms and put the furniture together because I didn't really trust the contractor, which turns out was a good instinct because it didn't go well. But yeah, just whatever it takes. <laughs> Honestly, whatever it takes. I've my I have a, a friend, Burke, who has driven from Idaho to Chicago and Columbus to install their vinyl because there I could I would not accept the prices of the vinyl installation that was that I was receiving like it's just it's it's highway robbery this is for the wall art so what what did, if you guys look at uh, any of our websites you'll see how the gyms are dressed um, the wall arts are just vinyl stickers yep. right you got to print the vinyl sticker then have a professional install them and um, first of all tell us a story about the level and the on the wall art and then tell us how much tell us how much Chicago wanted to install wall art <laughs> yeah apparently most um, installers don't bring things to, to tell them if something's level, they put it on the wall. <laughs> they just kind of guess. For real? And then although my... <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be surprised at this point, but that's insane. Apparently my instructions that are hyper-specific, um, either people don't read or they misconstrue something? They absolutely don't read your instructions. Can, I, I, can, I hope we can like put an image up on the screen right now of a, of a page from one of Jen's instruction sheets. <laughs> Because it's the most detailed, accurate thing. There's no way that if you work in an industry that's correlated or just anywhere on planet Earth as a human being and you read these instructions that you can misunderstand or imp implement them incorrectly, yeah. then they still do. Yeah. Let me interrupt you guys real quick. So let's not talk to them for a minute. Let's talk normal, normal people to normal people. <laughs> <laughs> Two engineers sitting here talking about, I mean, the documentation was so clear <laughs> and I just don't understand why it wasn't done correctly when... <laughs> You shouldn't be surprised at all. Nobody reads. Read. Nobody cares. They're like, oh, got some stickers, got a wall. I can put stickers on a wall. <laughs> yeah. I've been to Ikea before. I know how to put stuff together. They they read, but usually what, what they want to interpret from it, they interpret. So, for example, <laughs> I have the, the vinyl art for the graphics. It's four and five-eighths of an inch from the floor to the bottom of the graphic. It's... There's a visual image of that of that measurement. There's the written measurement, and oftentimes, it will be installed four and five inch, five eighths of an inch above the baseboard. Like, how did that instruction go from floor to baseboard? And your graphic, I've seen your graphic. It indicates don't do this above the baseboard. Do yeah. it above the floor. Yep. But There's a, yeah, an asterisk. Don't. <laughs> so, anyway, so, but I've bought brought Birkin for the last few installations and. Uh, not only because I know it's going to get done correctly because he brings in a level and is very precise on, on where it's going to go, but also because he's not trying to rip our, our franchise owners off. Uh, the quote that we got in Chicago for vinyl installation was $10,000 to, to put 10 stickers on the wall. Um, and then a couple. Printing? No, just that's installation. just installation. $10,000. Just to put them up? Just to put them up. It's an eight-hour job. Was it, uh, was it Union? In Chicago, probably. Yeah. But... But wow. all the uh, even Boise actually, um, our sand vendor actually had to, ended up flying out 
to Boise to do the install because he couldn't get a price lower than $3,500 for an eight-hour job. And he could fly out and do it for cheaper to, you know, and spend the night in Boise. So there's just so many scenarios like that. (laughs) I should start a label installation business or something. (laughs) Seriously. Seems really lucrative. Yeah. I don't want to start any more businesses at the moment. But if you guys have time and are interested, knock yourselves out. (laughs) It's just just unfortunate because there's so, almost every situation that the franchise owners are in with spending money, somebody wants to take advantage of them. Uh Um, And it's unacceptable. And so I'm, I'm particular, and when a franchise owner gets a quote from a contractor, a quote from a sign company or whatever, either I'm looking through it in detail or now our construction team's looking through it in detail to go through the fine print and say, uh, you doubled up on that, that's not necessary or whatever. So, for example, um, our, the Tulsa is being built right now, and our construction manager, Dana, who's also a general contractor, and built out starting strength Boise, so he knows how these jobs work. Also built out starting strength Columbus. He was going through their bid, line by line. They duplicated like six things. That bid, by the time he leveled it, and it wasn't even negotiating price down or anything. Just by the time he like took out all the mistakes, it was forty five thousand dollars off the off the bid. That most um, wow, probably ninety percent of franchise owners, anybody that hasn't been in the construction construction wow. industry to understand what this means would have paid that price. And it's like that it just breaks my brain and it, it actually pisses me off. Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's totally fraudulent. Well, like you've, I, I like to think of it that maybe, which is what makes me really pissed off. Also is <laughs> like in how long does it take an entrepreneur with a brand new business to make $45,000 <laughs> of profit after taxes profit, clear yeah, in their bank yeah. account that they get to keep and hold on to after the how long does period. that take yeah totally like so so long right yep and that's the thing is like the i mean i'm probably t- making this too personal but with those scenarios especially with that price difference it um, it feels like these people are trying to make our franchise owners fail right yeah uh, at every corner they're just like oh here's an extra 10 grand here here's an extra 20 grand here here's whatever and it's like do you understand to your point like what it takes to earn that much money once you're open for business, the amount of effort and time it takes to get to that profitability, that that's insane. So to it's not it's not acceptable to be spending extra here, extra here, extra there. So uh, the goal of, of our team is just like we're going to find all the ways that people are trying to screw you and we're going to talk them down and get the price to what's reasonable. Yep. Um, usually that works. Yeah. And it's not malicious, just in the way that it's not malicious when the government harms people. They just don't care. Yeah. They're just totally self-interested. Yeah. I mean, people, they're in business, too. They're trying to make whatever they can. Um, sometimes it feels a little bit malicious, but... It does, yeah, especially that sign vendor. Yeah, um, yeah do you want to tell the story about our payment processor? and Because it doesn't take much to get Ben upset. Oh, man. <laughs> but okay. if, you make, if, you wanna, okay. if you make false claims about security, <laughs> IT security... <laughs> Ben, uh, Ben's not happy, so hit us with it. Oh, man. That's, okay. That's, you might as well pour more whiskey, yeah. <laughs> I, well, okay, so the, the credit card, when you swipe a credit card or when you pay for something with a credit card, by the time that transaction hits Visa's network or MasterCard's network, there have been a few parties involved in the in the approval process and in the the rails that operate these credit card networks and so these companies that are involved that proxy these transactions and resell stuff for visa and then in turn their stuff gets resold they 
you know, they're effectively, have, they're selling a, a commodity. And it's, it's a commodity with an adjustable rate because sometimes Visa will slightly adjust the rates for certain cards from certain banks or something. And so the credit card processing company that we use, we're required to use because our membership management software only works with them. And they require us to do an annual PCI compliance form to basically legally state that we're being careful with your credit card information. And <laughs> due to the wonders of technology, and I'm not even sure if I believe this to be true yet, they claimed that they emailed like eight of our gyms to say, hey, you're, you're out of compliance. And, and so that email didn't go through or it was never sent. And instead they followed it up with an email pitching us on a scam that they call a security bundle, saying that if we pay $30 a month, then they'll protect all of our computers and they will further protect your credit card data, which, which is already maximally protected. Um, and they'll do this whole host of things. They had like eight bullet points, which were all lies. And then they said, oh, by the way, we've already opted you into it. And unless you call this number and press this option and wait on hold um, to opt out, we're, then we're gonna be charging you 30 bucks a month. The poor guy that you had to talk to on the phone because Ben did IT security for the NSA, for the F-18 program? There was different, I worked with the F-18 program, I worked with- separately with, with NSA. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess the NSA doesn't deal with airplanes, but um, government agencies in, in defense and IT security. And then also um, you ran, I think the world's first IP messaging based peer-to-peer money transfer system. You created that in Indonesia for BlackBerry. Um, bef uh, before iMessage existed, there was BBM, BlackBerry Messenger, which is kind of like the first phone-to-phone -phone, um, internet protocol messaging service. And so you could send money back in 2011 from your BlackBerry to another BlackBerry in Indonesia. And that was kind of a world's first thing. So Ben knows a little bit about the back end of credit card processing and a little bit about IT security. So the sales guy on the phone that was trying to convince Ben that yes, this is a legit IT bundle and you need this extra security. Oh, that's, that's the thing. So I, I emailed back and I was very upset and I forwarded a screenshot of the scam offer thing, forcing us to pay for a scam from a company that we've, we're supposed to be in business with. Like we have like a, we have agreements together that we're going to try to conduct profitable business together and not just steal from each other, you know? And, and, um, so, I, so uh, anyways, I saw it, so I forwarded off to our account rep and then I get a phone call from a guy who was claiming to know what he was talking about. And, and I just called him out on it being a scam and he, he was just lying to me and telling me that, that this is a cost recovery effort and that it's for our best interests. And he would not admit that they're just trying to make 30 bucks a month. And he may not know the difference. He may not think that it's legit because a lot of sales guys in the technical world don't know the details of what they're actually selling and they're convinced that it does something that it doesn't. But either way, it's unacceptable. So then I started running him through the bullet points that were listed and telling him why each of them were lies. Hmm. And then he tried to sell it to me again. He was like, well, but you guys, aren't you worried about, you know, in since COVID-19, uh, ransomware is at all new highs. And I said, L please stop, dude. Like, <laughs> you're speak like, I'm not trying to be an uh, arrogant prick, but like, you're speaking to an expert on the topic and you don't even know the words you're saying. You don't even know what they mean. Because <laughs> all you want to do is make 30 bucks a month. You must get a good spin. From eight gyms. Yeah. 
And now all of our gym owners are pissed. Yeah. Or the ones that were involved are actually pissed. The one, other ones are just laughing on the sidelines. But like, yeah. it's so crazy that businesses, that somebody chose to make that decision mm -hmm. to try to steal $30 a month from people that weren't paying attention. Opt-in, hey customer, I'm gonna start charging more money per month. I didn't send any certified mail, just an email. Like people that are trying to screw over small business owners, how many small business owners or any business owners have time to go through their whole inbox every day. Right, and and if, if they're like, uh, 30 bucks a month, and if it's gonna protect us, and we can afford 30 bucks oh, yeah. a month. It says here yeah. that we're at risk of being hacked, right. and they're gonna protect stuff that actually, like none of those words actually equate or mean anything to, when they're put together in the same sentence, like, They don't awesome. know any better. Yeah, fear is a popular, or a, uh, a powerful way to sell, for sure. But yeah, we basically spend, all of us spend a lot of time like catching our vendors trying to rip us off all the damn time. And then when we find people that, uh, like Rip and Steph, that, that actually want what's best for you. And um, it's, a, it's like when you go to dinner with friends. No one's squabbling over like, oh, well, actually, you know, you had two pieces of that and I only had one. So, you know, it's we're like, no, I got it. And what, that's, it's, that's kind of the level of generosity you want in a business relationship. Yeah. And, um, and unfortunately, we have to settle for less all the time. And, and the worst thing about this business is dealing with people outside of starting strength because <clears throat> the franchise owners and all the vendors and all the people that we hire that come from starting strength, they are driven by a purpose because this has changed their life in such a positive way. And they're so excited and committed to bringing it to more people that it drives their behavior. And then they're just kind of, in general, lovely, smart, analytical people in general. And um, yeah. I really enjoy working with people that give a damn and are capable. Mm -hmm. And that is in short supply nowadays. It, it, it really is the hardest part of the job. I mean, Jen and people on Jen's team like Phoebe have to take the brunt of dealing with external parties. I deal with almost all internal parties. So my day is a lot better than Jen's, unfortunately. But hopefully that'll, that'll change soon, especially as your team expands. But let's get back on the timeline. So where, where were we? We talked about the LOI. Um, we talked a little bit about construction standards. So what, what happens next? Yeah, once you once you start the lease negotiation process, um, we've got a whole team of people that start the sort of behind the scenes work. So um, sometimes a site survey, depending on the situation, and then a floor plan. So we figure out how many platforms you can fit in the space, and then just kind of get all the all the particulars situated in the floor plan. Send that to our architect, our national architect, and he takes it from there and creates what's called a, a construction document packet. That's a that put, that's put together for the city for permitting. So um, start lease negotiations on average eight week, eight to 10 weeks for lease negotiations. So in that time is kind of our opportunity to really gain some time. Um, oftentimes, especially lately, the terms of the lease are, as soon as you sign that lease, basically your rent starts ticking, your free rent period starts ticking. So our goal is to get as much done in this lease negotiation process so that by the, time, by the time you sign your lease, you can submit everything for permitting, you can really hit the ground running, so you're, you can have as much free rent as possible. So, um, so construction documents start happening, uh, signage package gets put together, and your ordering starts for all the big long lead time stuff, so rubber floor and um, equipment, furniture, all that stuff. So especially lately, the lead times have, have uh, gotten longer and longer. So we, we try to kind of start the process as, as quick and as early as possible. So um, by the time your lease is done, like I said, I don't know, eight to 12 weeks, one of the lease 
leases we uh, had to go through was seven months, but that's that's an extreme end. Um, <laughs> as soon as your lease is final, submit your construction documents to your landlord to review. They kind of look big picture stuff, just making sure any, you know, things like securities cameras on the outside of the building, they say yay or nay, or uh, sometimes they care about the concrete slab and the particulars of reporting the concrete slab and the PSI and all this stuff. But usually it's just big picture review. They sign off on it, send it to the city for permitting, and then send send your um, some or all of your per- permanent signage for permitting, at least your storefront sign for permitting. So start that process. Nowadays, permitting is totally backlogged. Um, so what used to take in, in Boise, as an example, maybe one week to get your permits took, I think eight weeks to get the permits, um, where in Boise. Oh, right. And then hmm. in, um, our Orlando gym is actually in Maitland, Florida, just on the border of Orlando. Uh, for many reasons that permitting, I think took five months. So, um, kind of start the permitting process and then start the construction, start the uh, general contractor interview selection process and our construction team dana who i mentioned before the construction manager is the one that's in charge of finding general contractors interviewing them and kind of getting a list together to to present to the franchise owner that said okay here's the people that i vetted here's who i recommend you you select who do you want to go with they select and then they start the process of um finalizing the bid and you know getting all the contract stuff figured out Ideally, once your permits are in hand from the city for both construction documents and signage, then the project starts. So you start demolition, start building up the space. On average, it takes eight weeks to construct one of our gyms. It's, it's gone as, as quick as four weeks and as long as 13 weeks, but on average it's about eight. Um, so it's a, it's, you know, once construction support starts, it's like, Go, go, go. So we have Phoebe who's managing all the orders for everything the general contractor installs in an effort to make sure that the timelines are achieved, make sure that the, the contractor isn't marking up your finishes by some right, sometimes 500%, um, and just making sure that the specification is met so they're not changing our lighting package or changing our rubber floor package or whatever. So Phoebe manages all that ordering. Um, I can go on and on about all the things that have been changed, and this is a surprise. Like, whoops, we didn't order on time. Now we have these options. Give us a couple of fun examples of changes that were made unilaterally. Um, yeah, I mean, well, I guess most recently, well, now that Phoebe's taken it over, less about what's been changed and more about um, what contractors are trying to charge for supplying things like a lighting package. So our lighting package, buy it directly from the vendor, is anywhere from $2,500 to $3,000, depending on the size of your gym and how, how many lights you need. And it's damn good. Um, it's designed a, by this fella right here, the dude himself. Yep. Um, so it's a relatively... <sighs> the lights abide. <laughs> <laughs> it's a relatively inexpensive lighting package. It's a great lighting package, and it's simple. It's a bunch of LEDs. So last a long time um the contractor who's currently doing tulsa um accidentally accidentally put the lighting package in their bid and um marked it up to seventeen thousand. so just um, a whoopsie doopsie I mean, just, that, oh, sometimes yeah. that happens like i'm typing invoices sometimes and i just go oh god and i type out a whole <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> add an extra one in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. Like, wow. And then I don't notice it happen. And I just keep going. <laughs> yeah. Just to give you an idea of how accurate GC's bidding is, that's they're like, mm -hmm. yeah, take a close <laughs> look. <laughs> when yeah, even when again you spend a lot of time documenting and making sure that you're listing out everything that the general contractors are going to supply and that the owner's going to supply, and they still goof. Um, you know what I think they do? I think they have templates that they just copy paste. They must. Or yeah. something. Like just, yeah, especially the duplicates. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm trying to think of other things. I mean, there's been all kinds of things that the general contractors sort of um, made decisions on without confirming that that's what needed to be installed. Chicago, for example. Um, anytime there's a threshold between floors, you want to install a floor transition. Um, and in the Chicago's case, apparently the floor transition that we supply did not work. And rather than the contractor calling up the construction manager who knows what an alternative would be, um, they just decided to install their own floor transition, which ended up being a strip of rubber floor that was just like cut crooked and they just sort of like filled in the gap between the higher floor and the lower floor and they just hoped for the best and then they had to modify the baseboard and do a bunch of funky stuff with the baseboard <laughs> and um, it just would have been really simple with just a quick phone call like hey do you have another transition you can send me this one doesn't work um, so now they have to go back and rip up the floor and fix it because it looks horrible but not at their expense because I've noticed lately when GCs make a mistake they then add the dollar amount to fix the mistake to the invoice. Yep. Yeah, they're like, well, you'll still pay for it, so. Yeah. Could you imagine? How is this yep. How is this possible? Yeah, they're like, well, that's going to be a change order. It's like, well, you didn't follow the spec. Well, you know, there's lots of specs written in your construction documents. If you expect us to follow all of these, that's that's absurd. You <laughs> wanted me to read? <laughs> Listen, there's a percentage of things that we're just going to make the call on, yeah. okay, whether you like yeah. it or not. They actually get really angry when you're like, well, it's, you know, if you refer to sheet 7... Point oh whatever this note they're like well you know that's a generic note that's it doesn't you know that doesn't apply here like no it does specific <laughs> if it means you would have done the right thing <laughs> yeah like oh, yeah. I don't know making sure the concrete floor doesn't have a bunch of high spots and low spots <laughs> leveling it because you're putting platforms on the floor and you don't want to lift on uneven platforms anyway ah oh, the level again shit the level okay got it <laughs> that's that tool I keep thinking I need <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know why, but the floor transitions transition specifically make me so angry. <laughs> when I see an incorrect floor transition, I just start to cuss and um, yeah. I get very upset. That's amazing. <laughs> Lots of things about GC's work upsets me. Um, when there are gaps between doors and door frames, when there are discolored electrical panel covers on the wall that don't match our spec, when there are electrical outlets on the wall, when Jen specified no electrical outlets and the GC goes, ah. Probably need some. I'll throw. I'll throw a couple in. <laughs> what does that woman know? <laughs> this four hundred thousand page technical specification clearly didn't consider everything. I'll make a couple of yeah. modifications. Been doing this a long time. I I literally specified the finish on the hinges on the doors. So that I mean, there's, it's all there. But pretty specific. Yeah. Anyway, so um, not complicated the detail. Plus the yeah. guy that did the 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 floor transition with the crooked stuff that he filled in. Stood up at the end of the day and was like, yeah, 
I'm happy with that. That's all right. I'm happy yeah. with that. Yeah, let's, get, let's move on. I'm not even going to tell code. anybody that it's all jacked up. <laughs> yeah, let's just hope nobody notices. <laughs> that's good. Nobody will, nobody will ask about that. The way we can tell if a general contractor has read the guide, and maybe part of their interview process should be some kind of a thing where in the middle of a detailed email it says, reply with the word belly button, or the, uh, um, if, you, if you read this far. And if no one says belly button, no one gets hired. Because yeah. the way we can tell if a GC uh, followed the guide or not was they will have no base plate behind the Nest thermostat. That's right. So if you see a gym that has a base plate behind the Nest thermostat, that fucking general contractor did not read the technical guidelines. And although that's not a giant deal, everything's important. All those little design specifications add up to an overall theme and a vibe and a, an aesthetic that we're going for. And unfortunately, that's not negotiable. And it's a franchise, and it's supposed to be kind of standard. And eventually, people will start to treat us like McDonald's. But at the moment, they're like, eh, I think I'll make the call on this one. Yep. Yeah. Well, that I mean, that's been the challenge with with our model in a way, and like our footprint. So, because we have such such small gyms, we're kind of limited in our general contractor selection. Yeah. A lot of general contractors aren't interested in doing a hundred fifty thousand dollar job, yeah. um, especially when the job is is truly just labor. Right. Because we're supplying everything. Um, so we kind of have, especially now with how much construction is going on, we have kind of slim pickings. So we try to do the best we can and pick the people that we feel are best given the options. Um, but it definitely has proven to be challenging. That in addition to brokers, real estate brokers. Yep. So our our real estate brokers get paid on price per square foot. They get paid on the deal. So if the deal is a 10-year deal, but it's 30 bucks a square foot and it's 1,200 square foot gym, it's not that lucrative for people. So they just don't care. If you're watching this and you're like, I'm a good whatever that we mentioned that we're complaining about and you're a good person and you like to do right by people and you're a Starting Strength fan, we have work for you. Info at startingstrengthgyms.com. E email us. Right, with belly button. <laughs> Put belly button in the email, otherwise you're not getting a reply. I'll set up to filter myself straight to the trash can. No belly button. Actually, policy. You know, it. one of the things that I've found about small business that's, for me, was kind of a surprise that I, or maybe I just didn't know before, uh, over time is that one of the reasons that small business is hard is because you can't afford the people to know what they're doing mm -hmm. and you can't afford the people with experience because all those people with experience, all those people that know what they're doing have really high end clients or they have jobs or they have, they're busy like they're cause they're good. Yep. And so you're left with literally the scraps yep. mm -hmm. and, and unless you have a, uh, proxy with domain expertise in every single one of the areas necessary to function as a business to help you sort through the scraps, then you are just screwed, man. Like, I don't know how anybody does it. Yeah. So we just have to keep finding the people that give a damn um, and the people with a bunch of skills because take a guy like Nick Delgadillo. I mean, shit, Nick is a world-class coach. He's a legitimate videographer, legitimate photographer, video editor, photo editor, shooting instructor, blah, 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 blah. I mean, business operator, business, I mean, logistics operator, technical operator. So you give me a guy like Nick, and that's why he's a shareholder. It's it's us three plus Nick plus Rip and Steph, so the six of us. And just between those six people, the amount of experience that we've had and the, the amount that we care uh, and all that kind of added together. I mean, just the the three of us with such an interesting, an interesting dynamic because... These two are engineers. Jen is an engineer in the offline world. 
Ben is an engineer in the digital world and the two intersect, obviously. So there's a bunch of crossover and they work together on a bunch of construction stuff. And then my role is basically risk assessment. So idea uh, or vision, assess the risk, assemble the team, figure out how the team's going to execute, set up processes, set up measurements, and then get funding, move forward, make sure everyone's happy, make sure it's working. So it's kind of an interesting dynamic that we have between the three of us. And you layer on minds like fucking Steph Bradford, who's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met. Smarter than Rip, by the way, which she admits and Rip admits, and we all we all now know. We can say it, you know, since they say it. And you've seen Rip's podcast, that guy's got, he's got a mind where, you know, he just so happened to get into to barbells. But you could take that guy and attach him to any category. And if he spent a 30-year career on figuring things out and looking at the first principles, he would he would turn any category on its head and find something that no one else found throughout history that's meaningful and important and and game changing. Um, and then you got a guy like Nick. So us six, and then uh, the people that have joined us since the inception to uh, round out our skill set. You know, Lacey and Luke and Phoebe and Dana and Adam and Becky, and we just have a kick ass team and then you couple that Courtney's just joined Courtney just joined the team I'm sure I forgot someone Kathy Delgadillo don't get upset if I forgot there's a lot of names now Kathy's a purple belt dude. <laughs> that's, really yeah. that's a good point yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's just it's just really nice to have that that level of talent and um, it is frustrating it is frustrating and when you but, but when you combine that all with the quality of people that we have uh, as far as franchise owners are concerned then um it makes all this stuff kind of less important because basically you have to get jumped into the gang and getting jumped into the gang means you've got to deal with the fucking government, general contractors and landlords. And if you can do all those three things and make it through to opening, um, then you get the privilege of being waterboarded until you're cash flow positive because that's unless you're wealthy that's what that's what business feels like it's financial waterboarding yeah. so if you're if you're betting big on this on a, on a new gym and it's a lot of your capital or all of your capital and you're you're going for it every day that passes before your cash flow positive is is a harrowing experience it's not good for you and all of that is terrible i, I don't recommend it except <laughs> i do recommend it because if you can get through all that shit Owning a starting straight gym is pretty cool. Yeah. It's not that hard. Yeah. Um, we set up all the systems and processes so as many things are as automated as possible. The overhead is minimal. You can do most things remotely. It's just about people. Mm -hmm. If you love people, if you love good people, above average intelligence, people that invest in the future, the people that come to our gyms, and you did a good job of selecting your coaching staff, you're your day-to-day -day job is making sure your coaches are happy and having a good time and successful so that they can ensure that the members are happy and having a good time and are successful. And it's not that hard. But all the stuff before that is way harder than it should be. Mm -hmm. it's, actually, it's actually disappointing how difficult and ridiculous and expensive it is. But I'm glad and the franchise owners are glad that uh, people like you are around to make sure they're not getting taken advantage of. You know, you, you have probably saved... I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Over half a million, maybe maybe up to a million dollars in potentially fraudulent invoicing up till now. Who knows, right? Yeah. But um, but way more than it should be. And the yeah. impact that the crappy construction has on the long-term viability of the business's ability just mm -hmm. to keep the doors open. Oh, yeah. Yep. When, you know, like some um, when Brent's gym had those 
concrete problems and they, they had to take everything out of the new gym that just got built, which was the second gym, and to redo the concrete. Yep. Yeah, and that's stuff that it's like, franchise owners, especially a new business owner, they don't want to deal with that stuff. Yep. That's damaging. You need to be spending your time on yeah. sales, marketing, talking to members, like get, running your business. So it's super distracting. It's, it's, it's unfortunate. Your gym's a factory and each platform is a machine in your factory. And if the machine is off or the factory is off, then you're in big trouble because you can't generate revenue and you, the expenses don't stop as we learned during COVID. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, it is, I really, okay. Out of all the crap, <laughs> I always try to be optimistic too. And it's a good point. Like you're, you're looking at the optimistic side of it and the positive side. And the really positive side is along the, you know, experiencing all the crap and all the terrible nature of people and the, the ways that they're willing to treat others and treat entrepreneurs or, or as a, give as much of a shit as they might, as we might expect them to. Um, it makes recognizing the people that do a really good job all the better. Yep. And yeah, our, our team is really fantastic. If, you know, I've been around really talented people. I've been super fortunate to be around like people who just excel, you know, and, and throughout different parts of my career. And, um, Man, our team here is like, firstly, the only team that 100% gives a shit across the board with zero exceptions. Like 100% gives a shit all the time by default, no matter what. Yep. Um, and knows how to actually do it. Yep. It's really amazing. Um, and and it's very humbling to that, that um, the Asgard team, you know, Mark Ripito and Steph Bradford and Nick Delgadillo, decided to also take the risk on us as business partners because they're a really fantastic group of people. And damn, it's rad to be, to bring all the force that we have now on this team collectively to market is, uh, is a very special thing. So that's why we get so pissed off when people try to mess with our colleagues. And mm -hmm. <laughs> they're hard enough. We don't need you trying to set up landmines for us. Things are difficult enough. Yeah. And really the pre-opening process shouldn't be this hard. It really shouldn't be. It's, it's ridiculous that it is. But um, it is worth it, and stress recovery adaptation applies to the psychological as well as the physical. Yeah. And uh, you will get your MBA in nine months when you open a starting strength gym because you're going to learn a lot about business, and you're going to learn a lot about human nature, and you're going to learn a lot about incentives and way things the way things really work. Because Jen, maybe you can talk to us about this for a minute because I believe that if you've never done business, there's a degree of naivety about your conception of the way the world works. 100%. Much in the same way that once you start to learn about starting strength and how this method that is basically counter to everything you learned about pop culture's conception of fitness, once you understand that starting strength is correct and it's the opposite of what the common understanding is, that can be eye-opening in itself. But when you actually learn how people behave what they say versus what they do, the way business interactions work, the way incentives work, how complicated things are behind the scenes. I think that's a, a unbelievably useful process to go through to mature as an adult. And I think it makes you a, a better um, spouse. I think it makes you a better parent. 
I think it is, uh, I, I would love to hear your thoughts on it because you were an engineer and you knew how the specific details in your domain worked, but you were completely unclear about how business worked in general and you got a very rapid education and you had your eyes opened probably faster and more than you wanted them to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's naive is a good word because um, most people don't have don't have the exposure to to kind of what we're seeing now um in in my previous world it was you have this budget there's this thing that you need to achieve by this time do that but but how to get that budget how to have those conversations how to determine even what money you should be spending all that was was never part of that conversation so i had no idea how any of that worked so then doing a complete 180 and being exposed to this to the business realm, um, it it's changed a, almost all of my perspectives um, and my understanding of how I thought the world worked and how I thought business worked. Um, and uh, it's a little frustrating, <laughs> especially with with COVID and trying to figure out how to operate a business when you're just unsure about if people are even going to come into the gym, if people you know if the government's going to shut you down, if you're you know, what's, what's tomorrow going to bring? You just wake up and it's a total crapshoot. Um, but yeah, and I don't know. Um, this back to your point about the stress recovery adaptation cycle, that was that, that was never, that's never really been a thing in my life prior to being now a business owner and being in this realm. It's that it's, it just wasn't a, a perspective that I had. It was just like, you come to work, you do your thing, you leave with this. It's, you pour your heart and soul into a business to try to get it to be successful and to bring value to people. And it may, may succeed. It may not succeed, but, um, you work as hard as you can and, um, try to get past all the barriers and you don't take a day off <laughs> and you just work and work and work and learn and learn and learn and iterate until, be figured out and, and figuring it out might be success or it might be, I'm actually not cut out for this. I'm, this isn't for me because it's really, really stressful. It is very stressful. It is stressful and affords you a degree of freedom that you can't get elsewhere. So you have to decide, right? Are you willing to put yourself through that? Is it worth it for you to take a risk? Because for my wife, Kathy, for example, it's, it's not, she's, she's always going to be W2. I, she could probably make a million dollars a year doing what she does, turning $1 into seven as a digital marketer but she makes great money with her company. It's significantly less than that, but it's consistent and it's stable and that, that matches her risk profile. But for those of you that, uh, that don't want a boss, that want to define your own hours and um, you, know, you want to blaze your own trail, then there's entrepreneurship, which I don't recommend it. Um, and then there's, and then there's franchise ownership, yeah. which is, which is kind of entrepreneurship light, yeah. in, which is good yes. in, in ways that people don't fully understand until they're in it. And if you get a good franchisor, you may not ever understand how good you have it. Absolutely. You may not under, you may not ever understand how good you have it. Cause I know a few people that own franchise companies that do not give a shit about their franchisees. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and it, it shows in everything they do. Um, watch but the John Oliver special on subway. That's an example. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, 
I don't watch John Oliver. Well, yeah. That, that fellow is... Uh, his, his Subway special was good. Yeah. He's a <laughs> propagandist. It's just an example of like how bad a franchise company can screw their people over because they're right, really yeah. just incentivized to make money. They're the biggest in the world, so it makes perfect sense. They're everywhere. Although the mustard in Australia is different than the mustard in the U.S., which I don't agree with. But uh, hmm. yeah, they don't have yellow mustard in, in Australia. What do you have? What do you do? It's some like weird Australian. I don't know. Australians fuck everything up. They've got <laughs> <laughs> what's that salty spread they put on Vegemite oh, and Vegemite, yeah. yeah, that's just really bad. <laughs> they just decided that yellow mustard is too delicious, so they they opted oh, for something else. So there are boats. Um, so what do we miss in the process? Did we, did we go through everything? We um, went through LOI. Yeah, I guess the the final part really is 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 really the fun part, I think, which you've you finally established pre-sales. You know, you're, you start construction. Now you know when you're going to open, generally. And then Ben and Lacey and, and a few others get involved. And now you start the process of selling memberships before you open, which is fun. So you, you're now promoting this to everybody that's been waiting for a gym in whatever market you're in. And with Ben's fancy systems, people just go online and they click sign up. And now you're making money. And you open a gym with however many members, and the word spreads, and now you're a business owner. So, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> business owner with business coaches and help at every level. Yep. And and other franchisees. I mean, every time I go into Slack, which is our our team communication tool, there's a. Um, you know, not every time, but quite often there's a question and then someone like JD will chime in. JD is the guy that owns Houston and, and just lay it out from a, because our, our position is theoretical. Jen's is more experience-based because she's been running Austin for a long time, but um, it's better. I'd rather have JD answer than me because I'm the one that created everything as far as the concept and the processes and the guides and all this stuff, at least at the beginning. You guys then made it all better. Um, but he's the one that actually took it and implemented it and, and refined it and knows how it works in real life. Yeah. So it's nice to have that support group and then also the franchise team helping people out. Yep. Yeah, our franchise owners, I mean, you know, anybody, anytime a franchise owner asks me a question, I'm like, yeah, I, I can help you with that answer. But also, please talk to whatever the scenario is, talk to this person and this person because they're also experts and they have their own perspective. Mm -hmm. And this is a team of people that, that also want each other to succeed because yep. collectively we all succeed together. That's and every, right. it seems like everybody sees that. The bigger this brand grows, and this is why people help each other out when a member visits from another city. And they'd usually just give the member a freebie to come visit. And um, there's just a lot of goodwill. And it's it's cool when we have these owners retreats and coaches conferences to everyone to hang out. And there's no shitty competition or one-upping. It's all, we're all, it's our, it's our group. It's our people. Yeah. And it's taken me until my mid, late 30s to find my people. But we've... I finally found my people. This is where I belong, which is which is a nice feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really fantastic. <laughs> um, and it's the group, like you mentioned in the beginning, about how people split a bill. Like our our entire extended family with the franchise team, everybody will just split the bill the easy way because they know we're all going to get each other back yep. Yep. next time. Very it all evens out. So what else, Jen? Have we gone through everything pre-opening that you want to talk about? It's pretty much it. I mean. I'm less involved in this side of things, but that's but during pre-sales is kind of when um, Nick really starts to step in, and um, you know everyone starts to finalize their team, figure out who's who's coming on and, and who's going to be the coach, and you know what they're going to do for their operations and things. And um, really, speaking of sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. We forgot to mention Ina. Ina's uh, one of the people Ina. that deserves a hell of a lot of credit. Yeah. Speaking of recruiting, <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 right, yeah. yeah. And with all of Ina's efforts, um, now finally, like the franchise owner you know, has selected their team based on people that she's sent them and, um, and they start to figure out 
how they're going to run the gym and to actually finally bring starting strength to market. So that's, that's, that's the bulk of it. And then, you know, operations are a, a much simpler, simpler process than pre-opening. Pre-opening is a huge pain in the ass, yeah. but once you get, once you get going, it's fairly straightforward. Like you said. Yeah. Cool. Um, Ben, anything else you want to talk about? Well, that just, I think reflects on, um, the neat part about us having done, or at least Ray and I having opened up businesses before now, Jen's business experiences, you know, the vision for this, this thing is so that once the bloody gym opens, mm. that it's easy to run. Mm-hmm. And man, that's nice. Yep. I, I love simplifying things and like taking out stuff and having processes that are as simple as possible that don't need instruction manuals. And yep. man, these, these gyms operate, uh, really well, I, as far as I can tell, yeah. <laughs> like They're very smoothly. That's how we designed it, and that's how it's actually working, which is pretty unusual. So that's, that's, for that's uh, hallelujah. <laughs> By the way, Bree, throw a little tag up at the top to uh, link to Ben's episode on tech, so people that are watching this can see Ben elaborate on that whole concept because he went into explicit detail about, you know, although he's the guy that runs technology, he actually wants as few things with internet connections and microchips as possible in the gym, because that's fewer things to fail and fewer things to support. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, I want the gym to be as little internet connected as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Even though most people are like, why don't you connect your key card to internet? Why don't you connect this internet? Why don't you complicate stuff? Like, no, no, no. For a bunch of very good reasons. <laughs> and we can talk about them if you want, but either way, we're not budging. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's probably a good place to end. That was a, that was fun. There's a lot more we can talk about. I mean, we could, we could do 50 of these episodes and have a have a lot of cool content but uh, we'll have to get jen drunk again um so um uh, we i was thinking we would either do this episode or we would talk about kind of the startup story and how jen moved down from alaska and we all moved into a big house and started this company together and there's there's a lot of fun and stress and nonsense and kind of some cool stories that happened along the way so but I thought this this episode would be more useful, and it, it answers a lot of questions that a lot of prospective franchisees ask. So um, if you want to see the background about kind of how we started this thing, we can do another one and have this conversation. Just comment below, and if someone's already commented, just give it a like, and I'll take a peek. And if you guys want to see it, for all five of you that have made it this far in the episode, um, <laughs> if you guys want to see that, let us know, and, and we'll do another one. But... Um, but yeah, thank you guys. You know, this is this has been my dream, and I brought you both in, and uh, you know, it became your dream too. And you've been busting your asses, and we're cash flow positive, and there's a bunch of successful gyms, and we're growing like crazy. And yeah. goddamn, it was stressful, but and it's not going to stop being stressful. But uh, I'd rather be doing this than working for somebody else, yep. and I'd rather be bringing starting strength to the world than. There's only a couple other things I could think of myself doing, and uh, this is this is basically ideal, right? It's like work with people you enjoy working with, do work that's meaningful, help people if you can, and if you can do all that and make some money, what else is there? It's pretty sweet, you know. Like yeah. So thanks for being on the show, guys. <laughs> yeah. All right. See ya.